0: Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today we're talking to Mr. Craig Miller, the director of fan relations for Lucasfilm from 1977 to 1980. Mr. Miller has some incredible stories about what it was like to market the brand new sci-fi movie called Star Wars. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 29. Craig Uh, normally, what we do typically with our interviews is just kind of chronological. I'd love to first talk about you know what you were a fan of right before you know getting involved in Star Wars, and then um, we can run through the gamut. I don't want to take too much of your time, but but you've you've done a lot, and so I want to get as much as we can. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm sure I, I can certainly talk far longer than anyone wants to listen. Sure, we can start at the beginning. I, I grew up a, a science fiction, comics, movie nerd fan. You know, I, loved all that stuff. I was a member of a local science fiction club going to conventions when I got in with uh, Lucasfilm and Star Wars. So I, you know, I I came in not as someone who was in the movie business.
0: How did you first get involved with, like, Charlie Lippincott?
1: Well, I met Charlie through... Charlie had decided to try, about a year before Wars came out, to try to build up interest in the movie in what's obviously a core audience, science fiction and comics fans. And he came to... He did his first Star Wars presentation at a convention called WesterCon, a science fiction convention, uh, which was the July 4th weekend of 76. And I was there and had some conversations, and I became a consultant to him on marketing the film to fans and fandom, and then eventually was hired to work at Lucasfilm full-time well that's that's what I
0: love the 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 comic con circuit for the original Star Wars, especially fascinating to me in this kind of world of you know big budget superhero movies and even how Disney's marketing Star Wars now how grassroots the original Star Wars was with you and Mr. Lippincott and, like, Roy Thomas and Howard Chaikin. What was that experience like first, like, evangelizing Star Wars, really, to to people? How are they reacting?
1: What you have to understand is that in the 1970s, science fiction was not a hugely popular genre. Today, every other movie is science fiction or comic book-based. Back then, that simply wasn't the case. Science fiction was not well thought of. There weren't a lot of um, science fiction movies or even superhero movies in the marketplace. You know, 2001 came out in 1968. There'd been Planet of the Apes. The first one was pretty great. They went downhill from there. Silent Running came out, but those were... Logan's Run. But those were kind of pretty much all there were. And most science fiction was not well thought of. Thought of as not serious. It was for kids and low quality. So it became quite an undertaking to try and sell to audiences the idea of going to a science fiction movie. And so starting with the core audience and trying to broaden out from that was the plan to try and reach people to try and get them interested obviously you know science fiction fans comic book fans were going to go but what you wanted what uh charlie wanted and what we wanted was to get them excited early on and to talk to other people about it to let them know through their excitement that this might be a great movie and that's pretty much what happened in in the early months of the marketing when charlie was doing shows at westercon comic con world science fiction convention the general reaction was great skepticism because these are people who were into it but thought well, well movies are probably going to be any movies probably going to be pretty awful and convincing them through this presentation which was a slideshow old fashioned 35 millimeter slide of Ralph McQuarrie art and Joe Johnston art and a few photos of people, um, you know, photos from the movie. And the reaction generally was people would come in skeptical and come out of the presentations going, wow, if they can really pull this off, that's going to be great. The first presentation was Charlie by himself. The next one at Comic-Con, Charlie knew that people would be skeptical, but they knew who Roy Thomas was. They knew who Howard Chakin was. And by doing the presentation with Roy and Howard, that brought in extra people because they were like, okay, be, you know, these are big-name guys in the comics field. Let's see what this is all about. And Roy and Howard talked about doing the comic, and Charlie talked about the movie and we're at the world science fiction they actually did a display of props and photos and costumes and then charlie gary kurt who was the producer of Star Wars and Empire, and Mark Hamill did the presentation. Now, at this point, no one knew who Mark Hamill was. He wasn't a big star. And Gary, if known for American Graffiti, not a science fiction movie, um, although he, of course, had worked on a number of science fiction movies, but they were mostly small-budget, Kinds of movies. But anyway, the grassroots was getting the word out, getting people excited. And there was the regular marketing, of course, the way you publicize movies. And a lot of merchandising was done to get things in front of people the novel through Valentine, the comic books, to have things in front of people to get them interested and excited. All of that built together. And the fans, that grassroots marketing, got people there opening week. And the other thing is that, that people didn't used to stand in line like that for movies. Today, you know, people, especially science fiction comics fans, will stand for two or three days or more for a big movie. That simply didn't happen. And so, when there were lines for Star Wars, not for several days, but for hours, people waiting, you know, this this showing sold out, so we're standing in line for the one three hours from now. That actually got a lot of publicity because that just didn't happen that people were so excited and interested in seeing this movie newspapers and tv stations were doing stories about that and that got more people interested because what's this movie people are standing in line for so it all it all built together to uh create the interest in Star Wars.
0: You, you mentioned the the novelization. You mentioned the merchandising behind it. We've talked. We talked to like Jim Swearingen, who did the Kenner toys. We talked to Alan Dean Foster, who wrote the the novel. And what's interesting to me is what the internal thought for how this movie was going to perform. I don't think anyone could have predicted kind of the long staying power and, of course, the box office success. But internally, and especially you, for instance, what was your thoughts? before this movie came out like how did you think this movie was going to perform
1: well you know people's predictions were all over the map of course no one predicted what did happen no one even predicted <laughs> no one even predicted that it would be you know the biggest movie of the year what everyone was hoping was that the movie would be successful enough to maybe make more maybe we we thought it would would break even, it would do well, hopefully enough that, you know, the studio would be willing to do a second movie. That was the kind of mm-hmm. hopes people had, the The thought that it would be the number one movie of the year, the thought that there would be as many movies made as, you know, people could make. Um, That 40 years later, people would still not only be talking about Star Wars, (laughs) but make Star Wars movies. That was beyond imagining. No one could have predicted it. Then
0: the reaction happened, and the reception is is huge. And the thing that I love about your involvement with, with Star Wars is the creation of the fan club and the creation of of Bantha Tracks, especially, which also had very long-staying power. Maybe talk us through that thought process, first of the implementation of the fan club itself, and then maybe even what you were hoping to put into it, whether it was the membership packets or the newsletter.
1: What I was hired to do, I was hired as uh, part of the publicity team, but I was hired to deal additionally with fans and fandom and to keep interest going um, and get, you know, get people involved. And my bailiwick included everything from the conventions to bookstores and comic book shops, but also starting the Star Wars fan club. And the thought behind it, you know, part of it was mercenary, of course, not we'll make a fortune on the fan club. The fan club, if anything, lost money. (laughs) it was to keep people involved and interested in star Wars between movies. That, that was the purpose. And that was, if there, if there was any financial side to it, that was it because we charged uh $5 to join and you got uh, a newsletter, you got a kit that included a full color poster and, pencils and and patches and photographs and book cover and stuff like that. I don't think we even broke even on the membership kit, let alone maintaining (laughs) the fan club. You know, again, the fan club wasn't done to make a profit directly. And my intent with the, you know, because we we met with, there are companies out there who process fan mail for celebrities and uh, operate fan clubs. And we met with them, and I didn't like any of those companies. I didn't like the attitude of most of them. I didn't like what they provided to the people who wrote in or joined the clubs. It felt to me very cold and mercenary, like they were being done by people who didn't really care. They were generating Mm -hmm. mailing lists for the purpose of selling stuff down the road. They weren't really trying to support the fans of the celebrity or whatever it was they were fan clubs of. So we decided that we would do it all in-house. All, all of the actors, for example, if anyone wrote a fan letter to Mark Hamill or Harrison Ford or whoever, that mail went dealt with it however they wanted to. Um, any mail that came to George Lucas or, or Lucasfilm or, for that matter, 20th Century Fox about Star Wars I had a staff who processed the mail. And I wrote a batch of form letters for really, you that had a dozen different questions or topics that, you know, ninety-five percent of the mail involved. Yeah. You know. Send us a photo, send me a this, where can I buy a that? How can I get a job in Hollywood? How can I can get, get a job at Lucasfilm? You know, all, all those kinds of things that you might imagine. And we had a, a form letter to go out to those people. And, you know, sometimes we would send out a photo. And um, actually, for, if they if they wrote to Dave Prowse, or they wrote to James Earl Jones, they got those letters. If someone wrote a letter to Darth Vader, and usually that was a little kid writing to a character rather than a, uh, an actor, we would send them a photo of, of Darth Vader. And for three years, any... Autographed photos of Darth Vader that were sent from Lucasfilm had my autograph on them. <laughs> you were Darth Vader. <laughs> I, I was what well, I was Darth Vader. If you got an autograph <laughs> by, you know, obviously Dave Prouse would sign photos and Dave he've right. always signed Dave Prouse is Darth Vader on his photos, things like that, and and most actors sign their name, not their character name. Right. These are just autographed Darth Vader because that's who they were writing to. But so that that was the the fan mail, and and some letters got personal responses depending on what they they wrote. But then we did the fan club, and I came up with working with our creative people, uh, our our art department. All of the elements that went into the fan club kit, um, including I designed the poster that we gave, that we sent out for the first couple of years. I designed Mm -hmm. it and Ralph McQuarrie painted it. (laughs) And everything in the kit, you know, I was in my early 20s at the time, so I wasn't, most people joining the fan club, probably somewhere between, you know, 8 and 18. Mm -hmm. That was the expectation. And, I wasn't that much older, and so I kind of knew what I would have wanted, and that was kind of how I handled the fan throughout. What would I want? Um, so that was the kind of stuff that was in the membership kit. And with Bantha Tracks, the newsletter, I, I wrote pretty much all of Bantha Tracks for the first three years, but except for one article, which is credited to someone else. We um, borrowed it from a fanzine and w- with permission. and. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else I wrote, it was all stuff that I thought I would be interested in if I was a fan. So it was interviews with George and Mark and, and Irv Kirshner, uh, Tony Daniels and other people. It was articles about how the special effects were done and just different things that I thought, you know, people who were fans, it was always written from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um the s- articles selected the photos selected that all came by thinking of what people would want to see would want to read and that was always the attitude for it we weren't taking you know yes there was a commercial purpose behind the fan club but we weren't taking the fans for granted we wanted to do things to keep the fans happy and interested and caring about star wars
0: Right when the wait between Star Wars and Empire is happening, what was your involvement? I guess then with the marketing and the lead up for Empire. Now that Star Wars was a huge success, how did the publicity and the thinking behind the marketing change, and how did your role change?
1: Well, we while it was a a, a safe bet that there would be interest in going to see The Empire Strikes Back, you know, after Star Wars, you know, it, it was it wasn't. A hard guess that people would be interested, mm-hmm. but still, we treated it as if we had to convince people to go see it. You know, we di- we didn't just throw it out there and uh, let it happen. Um, we marketed it like we would anything. I was involved both continuing with all the fan stuff including we did, starting in the summer of 1979, presentations at conventions about Empire Strikes Back. Mm -hmm. In 1978, while we weren't doing Empire presentations, I went to a couple of conventions and just did Star Wars presentations, talking about Star Wars and the art of Star Wars and stuff like that. So we kept the, the fan aspect of it and that grassroots aspect of it going. Um, But we also did all kinds of different marketing. Um, I worked with Sesame Street and we put R2 and C3PO on Sesame Street. And I was producer for Lucasfilm and supervised all of that. And actually, I, and I was one of, back then, it took two people to operate R2D2. Mm-hmm. And so we had one guy who was the main operator on these things. And I uh, was the second operator. I operated R2's head and, you know, blinked his lights and wiggled his eye and turned his head left and right. Yeah. While Ed Breed, who was the um, ILM guy who worked R2, was in charge of driving R2 and also making sure that he worked Mm -hmm. um, because I did not, you know, (laughs) technology of of all of it um, and having to deal with you know, the radio frequency problems and all that. Right. Um, but anyway, I was a uh, producer for Lucasfilm on it. We brought Tony Daniels in from England. And he, uh, of course, was C-3PO on Sesame Street, yeah. uh, as well as, of course, the movies. Um, so we did things like that, award show appearances, magazine articles. Back, back when there were a lot of magazines, right. I know most people don't know what they are anymore, huh. There was no internet, of course, so we couldn't do any of that. A lot of stuff with bookstores and comic shops. Um, and then we did things like, you know, one of my favorite things, which was really a fan thing when we set it up and became more than that, was the 800 phone line yeah. that we did. 800 numbers were still relatively new um, back in the 70s. And we set up a thing where. I, I wrote and we recorded messages from I think it was five of the characters: Luke, Leia, C-3PO, Han Solo, Darth Vader. And we used uh, we had the actors record the messages. Um, everyone recorded their own character, and then starting beginning of 1980, if you called our 800 number, uh, which was 800 five. 1980, 521, May 21st, 1980, the day the movie comes out, yeah. <laughs> you got a message from one of the characters telling you something about the movie. And it was, you know, people listen to them now and they go, oh, but you're giving away so much. But back in 1980, when you heard, oh, we went to the Ice Planet, no one knew what the Ice Planet was. And that didn't tell anyone yeah. anything other than there was going to be this cool new location, you know, things like that. So they were, they were teases really. And, you know, to get people excited. And uh, the, the amazing thing about it, and I've told this story before, is that we did not do any advertising. This really was just a fan thing. I announced it at a couple of science fiction conventions and Starlog ran a couple of, paragraphs announcing it and we we had a really good relationship with Starlog log right. um, and but anyway they ran a couple paragraphs announcing it well the response was so enormous literally down all 800 number traffic for the state of Illinois the first few days the line was open as people found out about it back then phones weren't computerized it was a lot of it was switching. So one a particular prefect, 521, you had to be in that geographic location, which was in Illinois. So that's where we had our phone room set up to answer the messages. There were so many calls coming in, even though we had many phone lines responding, it completely overwhelmed the 800 system (laughs) of AT&T, which back then was the only phone company. Right. They they could not give out busy signals. They couldn't give out any signals, and not just from our number, but from any 800 number based out of Illinois. And so the phone ATT came to us and told us we had to cease all advertising, which was easy because we hadn't done any and had none scheduled. We had to, if we insisted on continuing this, We had to increase the number of phone lines, which we said, sure, no problem, we'll do that. And we had to send out a public apology because AT&T didn't blame for the problems because all all the people who had 800 numbers in Illinois weren't getting their calls. An AT&T problem, it was Star Wars that did it. (laughs) And I was just so willing to do that and we sent out a press release that apologized, you know, this went out everywhere in the world. Star Wars fans were so enthusiastic about hearing anything about the movie that wouldn't be opening for 5 months that they shut down the phone system in Illinois by overwhelming the uh, uh, equipment. But don't, don't worry, you can call now because we've it's all been fixed. So we got vastly more publicity because <laughs> of this accidental shutdown uh-huh. than from just doing it because we weren't, you know, we weren't publicizing it. It was just fans calling. So that worked out doubly great. Oh, fans well. loved it. <laughs> um, and, you know, we got all the publicity from it. So that was great. So, I mean, we did, we did all kinds of things. You know, we, I don't think we needed to do the phone line to get science fiction fans to go see Star Wars. we, wanted to keep doing these things to keep people interested and excited
0: one thing you mentioned that i'm just curious about that's kind of separate from this is you read all these letters from fans you interacted with starlog a lot and the fanzines and i guess we're in a kind of period right now waiting for episode nine and there's theories and there's clickbait articles and there's all these things what were the theories or the craziest things that fans were asking about leading up to Empire? What was the thought process behind just like a normal fan without the internet and with very limited knowledge of what the Star Wars galaxy was?
1: Well, you know, there there was a tremendous amount of interest, of course. Right. And everyone was guessing, you know, about what was going on. Of course, without the internet, you could only talk to your friends. And if you're in a club, maybe the people in the club. Or if you go, if you were going to conventions, you know, people at conventions, but it wasn't this thing where you post something online. So it was a much more contained sort of thing by the fact that there was no way to do it broadly. Um, But honestly, George was very worried that people would find out what was happening in The Empire Strikes Back. He wanted people to go into Empire completely surprised. So one of the things we did that, that I did is working with Starlog, again, not just Starlog, but Starlog was the biggest of the science fiction media magazines, and we did have a good relationship with them from Star Wars. One of the very first articles to appear about Empire Strikes Back, I provided Starlog with some photos. This came out, I think, the end of 1979. Mm-hmm. So, like six months before the movie came out. And they were photo of Luke on the Tauntaun, which was sent out when we started shooting. So, we provided Starlog with these photos, and they ran an article <laughs> saying, There are all these rumors about what's going to be in The Empire Strikes Back. So, we've compiled all these rumors, and here they are for you to see. But in reality, I wrote the article. <laughs> And I showed George the article, the draft of the article, and he said, Well, that's great, but you should add more rumors. Well, it was already like a two page article. Yeah. <laughs> but I said, And I said, Look, George, I already wrote all of these. And he said, That's all right, I add more. And so the article as published is my original rumor article. Uh-huh. And then there's a, a sidebar which got added which has Starlog asking me the Lucasfilm to comment on the rumors. (laughs) And I, and I reply that it's an interesting list. And some of them were right. And some of them were completely in left field, but I wouldn't tell them which ones, but as long as they're looking for rumors, here are a bunch more, some of which are true. Uh And, so the sidebar was like additional rumors. <laughs> and so that ran in Starlog in December of 79, I think, is when it hit the mm-hmm. Um In order to, you know, it, it really was George wanted people confused about what was really in the movie, right. because there are always rumors, some of which are even accurate. Cause someone might have known we did an ice planet. You know, they well they had to know we did an ice planet because they knew we were shooting in Norway, and so we told people there was an ice planet. But it all the the article also talked about there being, you know, a, a water planet and being a desert planet and you know, and other things. So no one, you know, no one, no one could really figure out what exactly was going on from this.
0: You were the original J.J. abrams'
1: mystery box that's what you're saying this is <laughs> well um yeah we i mean, we we wanted to provide stuff but we we also wanted to we wanted to make sure there were rumors out there, even though you know we knew there were and it was just, you know and it was fun making up these rumors and all and a lot of them were rumors that were really going around that I would hear from fans all the time who would ask me questions as as someone who was you know, in his twenties, this was my first job out of college, really, and but you know, a whole life as a science fiction fan. This was just amazing, and you know, it it was work, and it was hard work, but it was it was fun. There was a lot of good people involved. I made a lot of good, very good friends, many of whom I'm still in contact with, uh, many of whom I've continued working with. In one way or another, over the years, um, Gary Kurtz, who unfortunately passed away the end of last yeah. year, he and I have been good friends and worked together on many movies over the decades. And he was, in fact, scheduled to be executive producer on a film I'm involved with um, that you know is still waiting to get all of its stuff together. But, you know, so we've continued in a a professional and social relationship uh, throughout all these years. Um, But there's, I mean, there's a lot of good memories, a lot of fun memories. Some of it was just, you know, exciting things like spending time at the studio, production, spending time with these different people, seeing all the the behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, you know, doing Sesame Street, operating R2D2, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's all pretty cool. You know, it's it's hard to be blasé about something like that. You know, and it and it really formed really formed my life after I left Lucasfilm, which was right after we opened Empire. I became a publicity and licensing consultant to, um, for the next to Disney and Warner Brothers and Jim Henson, universal Studios um on many many different movies and after that uh, I continued in the entertainment industry working as a writer and producer in animation, which is what I'm still doing um so you know it's it's really my life came from being a science fiction fan, going to convention all the Star Wars and then the entertainment industry. So it all grew together.
0: That's so great. I mean, the list of of movies that you then were a consultant on or did the publicity for after Empire is a list in its own. And we could be here for, for hours talking about Superman or Excalibur or Dark Crystal, of course, or Muppets. And so really, I just wanted to kind of go through any... Major highlights. You mentioned working with Jim Henson. We've talked to a lot of different performers that worked on both, you know, the Star Wars trilogy and then and then Dark Crystal, especially. What was what was that like? Sure, there was, a, there was a,
1: a lot of overlap. Yeah, Dark Crystal was great. In fact, when I left, Gary Kurtz asked me if I would come work with him on the marketing of the Dark Crystal, which he was producing for Jim Henson. And so that's how I ended up working on Dark Crystal. Um. And that was great because I worked directly for and with Jim on the film. You know, officially, I was being paid by Universal Studio. They were the people uh, I, you know, I worked with. Um, it was, it was amazing to watch that life, the, the Muppet, uh, Muppeteers, the puppeteers are just fabulous talents. Um, the world was so deep and rich. In fact, we did a museum exhibit here in L.A. at the Craft and Folk Art Museum called The the Art of the Dark Crystal, The World of the Dark Crystal. I don't remember the exact title, but it was all about, you know, we there were a number of the, the there, of course, but it was showing all the detail, like the um, Skeksis having that big banquet and it showed like the plates and the silverware and and all the depth of it and the fabric and you know and and it was and not just that one it showed that entire craft and folk art basically which is why it was in that museum of the world of the dark crystal and all the different areas you know the pod people and the uru and and all of that and so you know we did all kinds of interesting things for that, because it was such an amazing production.
0: So another movie you collaborated on with Gary Kurtz was Return to Oz. What was working on that film like?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, Oz is a fascinating intellectual property, for want of a better term, fascinating world. All the books that uh L Frank Baum wrote and then later many other people wrote Oz books but there's again so much there um and and Walter Merch who directed return to Oz and was of course in the uh involved with the Star Wars movies was was a huge Oz fan Gary was a big Oz fan and while I'd read many of the books I wasn't as deeply involved with Oz, but again, you know, you got, you get into some of these movies that are made with so much love and care for the property that it it grew in the movies. And there's so much you can do with it to help audiences find the movie. You know, a lot of what I loved doing when I was in that part of the entertainment industry.
0: Definitely. Well, I know we were talking before that you've now written a book about your experiences specifically working in this capacity for for Star Wars and Empire. Uh do you want to talk a little bit as much as you can at least about about it and maybe when it's coming out?
1: Yeah, I I've, I've let's say I finished I I've finished the book although I'm going to go back tweak a couple of passages here and there because, you know, uh if if you've written any if you're an artist or Anything you know that you can't stop fidgeting with it and fussing with it, but the book's all written. It's about hundred thousand words, which means it's like three hundred, three hundred and fifty pages when it gets published as a book. And right now, I'm um, get trying to get copyright clearances, permission to use the photos I want as illustrations. It's it's not a photo book. It's not an art book. It's a, well, I call it an anecdotal memoir because it's my memories of working in this area but it's broken down into different chunks based on different types of activities or events or you know like there's a section on doing sesame street there's a section on doing um, the underoos sections about the fan club and stuff like that so that it, it's broken down that way and there are a lot of photos I will want to use to illustrate what was going on. So it, it's not, it's not a big, it won't be a big coffee table book with large photos or hundreds of photos, but there'll be, you know, if hopefully like 50 or so photos in it that um, some of which are unknown, um, you know, not, not have been seen very much. And a lot of them are taken by fans at event and that sort of thing. And so that's what we're working on right now, you know, just including a lot of different things. I talk about, uh, I do a long section on Lee Brackett, who was this wonderful woman who did the first draft of the Empire. And so we talk, you know, we talk about where Lee came from and how she got involved with Star Wars um, and what happened after Lee died. Anyway, all kinds of different things. And um, like I say, it's all about um, the making of those movies and the fandom and the marketing and the fandom around them from my perspective as a science fiction fan and an employee of Lucasfilm and a uh, publicity executive film during that prop period.
0: Well, if the stories are anything like what you've told today and if the pictures are anything like your Facebook cover photo, which is you in front of the Millennium Falcon at Echo Base, which is crazy, um, it's going to be a, a book to buy day one for sure.
1: <laughs> well, I, I hope lots of people buy it. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, hopefully, it'll be out for this summer. Um, it really is figuring out how, how long this um, photo clearance process will take.
0: Uh well, other than that, I know you're you're very involved with the convention scene still there are some great panels that we'll link to in the in the show notes that you've either moderated or have just presented on its own and um really kind of keeping this history of of Star wars alive. There is a really great one with um someone we've interviewed mickey herman who which was an awesome she told stories that she didn't tell on this podcast, and I would definitely recommend that as well and so Um, I think your next scheduled appearance, as far as I could find, is Empire Con in December in L.A. that uh, actually we're going to try to get out to, so... um, Well, actually, I'll be doing
1: at Gallifrey, the Doctor Who convention in February, and while I'm usually there uh, working in television, um, we are doing, this year we're doing a star wars panel um bob miller wr miller and i are going to do a panel talking about star wars so that's gallifrey uh here in la again in february which is uh, uh the big doctor who convention and and then empire con are the two things that i'm scheduled to be at right now i don't know what else will happen i'm always you know i really like going to conventions. I love going to fans. I mean, I'll be going to WonderCon and San Diego Comic-Con. I don't know what I'll be talking about at those conventions. They may not be Star Wars panels. Sometimes they have me on them. But I'm always at those two conventions. And we'll see what else comes up. And if if there's a Star Wars convention that wants uh, me to come out, they just need to get in touch with me and we can uh, do something. I do a slideshow and, and answer questions and
0: Perfect. Well, I guess now we're going to have to talk. We know a few convention um, runners here in Dallas, and maybe maybe that's the next thing. Um, well, uh, Mr. Miller, thank you again so much for taking the time and, and these stories. Well, I'm I'm always happy
1: to talk about Star Wars.
0: <laughs> you and me both.
1: Okay. All right. <laughs> well, thank you.
0: again to Mr. Miller for his time and his stories. As we mentioned during the episode, he will be appearing and speaking this weekend at Gallifrey Con in L.A., and then at the end of the year at Empire Con, which is shaping up to be an incredible show in California. And check out the link in our show notes for our new merch store, which currently has swag to Rapid Celebration and beyond. Sizes have started to sell out, so get on it. Uh, next week's episode is a live sit-down we did with Mr. Michael Carter, Bib Fortuna himself. So stay tuned. we do a five-star review